This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I always thought uh, the U.S. is this place that can do the impossible. I mean, we all the gadgets, all the new things, all the excitement, all the quality of life improvements come from U.S. innovations. But now I see China doing the things they're doing and doing them so well. I think the U.S. got a competitor now, and we just have to wake up and compete. Raphael Reif is the president of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, which has long been a center of technological innovation in the U.S. and the world. And he's worried. He's worried enough to support a push to increase the nation's investment in science in a way that can lead to breakthroughs in innovative technologies, like artificial intelligence. But first of all, he's an educator with a passion for education. And that passion comes from his own experience growing up in a relatively poor family in Venezuela. This is so great to be talking to you today because it's interesting to me. You have such a distinguished career. You're active in so many areas. And yet, when I was writing down on a piece of paper the things I was curious about asking you about today, at the top of the list was that you took the bucket challenge. (laughs) I think because that's key to me, to who you are. You put yourself into it in a personal way. Well, I mean, I think it was a very important cause, Alan. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I... you know, I was challenged by a college president, and I was not going to reject or deny a college president. Uh, so I took advantage of that to actually invite other college presidents to suffer the way I did. But but it was really a it was really a very good cause, and I was delighted to do it. And I froze, yeah, I froze, but it was good. <laughs> well, I, when I put that together with what I read in your bio, that each year you are a freshman advisor. It really sounds to me like you have a personal approach, the learning experience for your students. Where does that come from? Well, that goes back from when I was a child. Education saved me, um, uh, and I'm sure it's saving a lot of people today, and I wish it saved even more. I was born in Venezuela, in South America, but my parents uh, were refugees from Eastern Europe. 
so they basically escaped Eastern Europe right before the war. And, and as I was growing up, my father always told me repeatedly, apply yourself in your education, because when you have to leave a country in a hurry, that's basically all you can take with you. And that was engraved in my mind, and, um, and here I am. How did it save you? Well, in the sense that, you know, when you live in a, you grow up in a poor neighborhood, what you see that is doable is what you see in your neighborhood. And, and uh, uh, if you don't see people aspiring to more, you think that's what life is all about. I mean, you're a child, you're a young person. You just see what others do. And, uh, and my father, who did not have an education, always inspired me and my brothers to think in terms of what you can achieve with an education. That, that, that got me out. I, I, um, uh, I have three older brothers, and, uh, and the third of them, the one that is a little older than me, somewhat older than me, the, th- uh, you know, the third in, in age, uh, the first two, basically, they, after elementary school, they went to work. They had to help my dad support the family. Uh, the third one was the pioneer. He went to high school. <laughs> and then he was the pioneer. He went to college. And, and I saw that, uh, and I followed that route. And I was, by the time I came along for, to go to, to leave elementary school, uh, you know, my father and my two older brothers, uh, you know, were supporting the family well enough that I could also afford, like my third brother, to go to high school and college. So that made a big difference. Uh, you know, my life would have been a very different life if I would have done that. And now it's really interesting that you're taking that thirst for knowledge that you personally had that was engendered by your father and you're spreading it around the world with your work with MITx and EDx, edX. And I read that every country in the world is represented among your student body in this online learning experience. That's extraordinary. I mean, you must cover a lot of the people with the same background that you had in terms of poverty. Well, that, that, that was the dream that drove me. When I was in Venezuela in college, I went to a college that nobody has ever heard of. If I mention the university name, Venezuelans listening to the podcast will, will celebrate, but nobody knows they exist. It's Universidad de Carabobo. I can assure you you've never heard of that place. That's where I went to college. And, and I studied from textbooks from MIT, which I could not afford, uh, but, but I, I went to the library who had one set of textbooks and, and, and I took it for a day and then passed it on to another student and so forth. And just touching, I never dreamed ever, ever setting foot at MIT, but just touching, just even telling you this gives me a, a you know, a, <laughs> a sting in my skin. Just touching those textbooks meant a great deal to me because I was studying from the same textbooks that people here study, which are, you know, textbooks written by professors from MIT. That, that inspired me. That, that, that meant the world to me. And I was thinking, you know, once I'm here, once the technology evolves, I'm thinking, if, if I cannot just, just deliver MIT books to people like those in Venezuela, but I actually deliver lectures from MIT people and give the ability for you to study and take a course with many other people with the MIT rigor and do well. You know how much self-esteem you get from that when you're in the middle of nowhere? That's what I felt. When we were talking about change, 
And one of the changes that you really seem to be accepting as a challenge is the changes brought about by globalization and the the competition that we find ourselves in with other countries, which I, I sense you feel is in a major way with China. Is that so? Yes, that's correct. And you said a wonderful thing in an op-ed piece you wrote for The Hill, that when you're in competition with somebody, like in a race, you don't hope they'll trip. You hope you can be better at running. So that limiting China in its capacity to compete with us is not as good a strategy as getting better ourselves and out-competing them. That's correct. How do you hope to go about that? Well, it's a really fascinating situation. I mean, I think what China has able to achieve is, is impressive. And, and, and we can argue about how they got there and so forth and so on. But the bottom line, that's impressive. And I think, you know, to me, I always thought uh, the U.S. is this place that can do the impossible. I mean, we all the gadgets, all the new things, all the excitement, all the quality of life improvements come from U.S. innovations. But now I see China doing the things they're doing and doing them so well and I felt, well, I mean, I think the U.S. got a competitor now. I, I don't think they've noticed, but they better wake up and notice. I think the narrative that China got where they got by stealing and all that kind of stuff, well, that may, may, may be true in many cases, but the truth is they're ahead in many other areas. So when you're ahead, you cannot steal from anybody. You are, you are the, front, the front runner. Who do you steal from? So uh, we have to recognize in some areas they are the front runners, and, uh, and, and we just have to wake up and compete. And I find competition to be a very good thing. I mean, we can get better, and they can get even better, and, and, and humanity improves in that, in that, uh, in that way. So... I just realized something um, very unusual is going on here. The U.S. is not used to not being the most dominant economy and the most dominant technologically and scientifically country in the world for most of the people who are alive today. That may not have been the case 100 years ago, but it's the case now. Uh, people are not used to that, and I think they have to get used to that and respond and respond the way that uh, a proud nation should respond, which is by competing. Uh, simple concept. How are they out competing us at the moment? How, what are they dominant in? I was awakened to this fact a few years ago. Uh, a, a fellow came to visit me in my office maybe about four years ago or so. This is the head, the founder and CEO of a company in China. He showed up in my office and he put a little gadget, a little just rectangular gadget in between him and me in, in my, in my, in my ta- in the little table that I had in between those two chairs. And and he spoke to me in Mandarin, and the little gadget translated right away in English. And then uh, I was stunned, uh, and then they encouraged me to answer in any language I want. And I said, well, I'll answer in Spanish. So I answered in Spanish, and the little gadget translated into Mandarin. I was completely blown away. I mean, that, that the application is very cute, of course, but I was not admiring the application. I was admiring the technology. I mean, that was very advanced speech processing technology they had. And, and I was extremely impressed. Again, I'm used for the, uh, that the new gadgets, the iPhones, and all those things uh, that, that, that we have created through the years come from America. And here comes this little gadget that I've never seen before uh, coming from China. Um, 
I remember that the, 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 the fellow was so impressed that I was so impressed. Of course, he came to impress me that he gave me that little gadget to take home. And, and, and I remember thinking, I'm, this is so cool. My wife would be so happy. She, she, uh, she, she is American born and she always makes fun of my, my English and my accent. So I'm going to say, finally, I'm going to be able to talk to her in Spanish and she will understand perfectly because the thing would translate. So I go home. I was happy with my little toy. Um, I plug it in and I, then op open to see the instructions, how to use it. Instructions were in Mandarin. So I couldn't understand a thing. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't use it. I still have it somewhere, but I don't know how to use it. That was a wake-up call. Something, something unusual is going on. They, are, they have a technology that at the time we did not have. It was clear to me. How did that happen? And then in a, in a trip to China that I went myself, I uh, went to another company to visit and they took me to a huge, um, uh, in front of a huge wall that was a screen, a flat screen display on a, on a, on a wall, pretty big. And uh, it was um, a very busy pedestrian crossing was displayed on the screen in real time of another city, in another big city in China. And they asked me, you know, go and point at somebody. And I pointed at that person. And right away, it came a whole, a whole set of... Um, uh, identifiers of who the person was, uh, name, age, address, everything was just right there. I was blown away. Again, that's a way that technology was being used at the time in that company, maybe helping the government, I have no idea. But what I was impressed is that technology. I mean, face recognition technology embedded in that, in that with very fast communications, that was impressive. We didn't have that technology. Then future advances on artificial intelligence, they are really in some areas way ahead of us. Um, then the future quantum, quantum computation, quantum information, they are ahead of us. So that's the wake-up call. But I wouldn't have paid attention to all the other stuff until I had this encounter with a technology that was better. And I realized, well, uh, either we accept this or we figure out how to change this. I, I remember I was personally struck by their technological skill. New Year's Eve, uh, as, the, as the calendar turned to 2020, and there's this an unbelievable video on YouTube of 2,000 drones that light the sky. Each drone has a, has a separate light on it. And they flew them in a pattern that was a perfect replica of a man running across the sky. The, the coordination of those drones must have taken some kind of, some kind of code writing that is spectacular. I've, there's no, I've never seen anything like it. When you, when you encountered the gadget that could translate from Spanish to Chinese and back again, and I encountered on, on YouTube this man running across the sky, it kind of pulls you up short. If you haven't seen that YouTube video, I suggest you check it out. It's not only awesome, it's scary in what it reveals about China's advancing technology. I'm chatting with MIT President Raphael Reif. And after this short break, we'll talk about his support for a bipartisan bill that was recently introduced in Congress that aims to fund research that's targeted to increase our competitiveness with China. 
Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Raphael Reif. So there's this bill that's going before Congress that will enable the National Science Foundation to also engage in basic research that has NI on applications. How is that going to work? What, what, what does the bill call for, for instance? 
the bill calls for a, a creating a new directorate within the National Science Foundation that will focus still on basic science, but in this case, this directorate will focus on basic science uh, with an eye to applications, what, what people refer to as youth-inspired uh, research. The National Science Foundation is a beautiful entity that have got us to this point by supporting basic science that is curiosity-driven. And, and what I'm saying is that ought to continue, has done a lot of good things, and is the foundation of just about our future of anything, because advancing knowledge can only improve the way we do everything in our society. But in addition to that, to recognize the present challenge that we're facing, the United States, I would say, I would say the world as well, we also have to support still basic science that is more youth-inspired. It's basic science that may lead to an application. And, and those are two uh, are twins of what basic science is, still basic science, but one is just driven by curiosity, care, not caring about the application, and one has an eye on the application. I think that I think we don't have much of the latter in the civilian sector. I think that's one of the reasons why we are where we are right now, a little behind in some technologies. In the civilian sector, we don't do much of that. Uh, we don't do much support of that. And I think we need to create that. And the National Science Foundation is the best entity we have in this country to support basic science in the civilian sector. I was looking at the 10 categories that you're proposing to start with, and apparently they can change from year to year. Artificial intelligence and machine learning is one. High-performing computing, quantum computing, robotics, natural or anthropogenic disaster prevention, biotechnology, genomics, synthetic biology, cybersecurity, data storage, advanced energy. That really is a broad range if this legislation goes through, how will these categories get worked on? Well, I, I, would, leave, I would leave that to the National Science Foundation to, to figure out. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to design that for them. But, but, but I, to me, what I see, what I would like to see is what I see at MIT every day. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. So we have people here that are doing fundamental basic research science in how, how we think, how we learn, how the brain works, how the brain becomes the mind. That's pretty fundamental questions that we don't understand. Uh, at the same time, these individuals that are doing basic science talk to other individuals that are really trying to figure out how to advance technology. And, and you mentioned machine learning in the list. So in the area of machine learning, China is ahead of us. Why? For a variety of reasons, but one of those reasons is that in today's technology, to teach a machine to recognize something, we need to supply the machine with a lot of data to train it. So, for instance, for a machine to recognize a cat, we have to show, him, show the machine a billion pictures of cat to train the machine. It's just data advances that kind of technology. These scientists learn about this use and realize, hey, wait a minute, if I learn how a six-month-old or a one-year-old baby learns, the baby learns how to recognize a cat, 
at one year or two years without having to show him a billion pictures of a cat. So if I can do that, could you come up with an algorithm that replicates that? And boom, there is a interaction. So that is, that is a basic fundamental research. And then using that, inspired to see whether you can advance a technology. So NSF is the perfect place that has these people doing discovery research, curiosity-driven, coming up with all sorts of important questions you're trying to answer. And if they have other group of people that are trying to figure out how using basic science they can improve or advance technology, I think we're going to see miracles happen. Is it going to be spread out among regions, do you think? I, I would like to. I mean, again, that all depends. I'm just a lonely college president with ideas. I don't know exactly how this is going to be implemented. But I, I believe that what we need to do here, this is a great opportunity. Look, in America, we have great centers of excellence and economic uh, uh, vitality. You have the, the Silicon Valley in California. You have the Boston area with the biotech. Uh, I would argue you have a few, some, I mean, uh, some activity in New York. You have a few areas that are doing very, very well. And I'm talking about a competition with a formidable competitor. I don't think we can expect the U.S. to be really a formidable competitor with China by putting New York, Boston, and Silicon Valley against that massive uh, 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 enterprise. So, I, what I think we need to do is, is get these this kinds of activities, spread them out into centers of, regional centers of excellence across the U.S., have 10 of those in different parts of the U.S., center around a university or two or three that can advance the science, just the same way it happened in Silicon Valley, what happens in MIT and, and the Kendall Square area here. We need more regional centers like that. And I think this is a great opportunity to create that uh, across the nation. The legislation that's being proposed to do all this is, I believe, called the Endless Frontier Act, which is a, a hearkening back, I think, to Van Eber Bush's proposal to President Roosevelt at the beginning of World War II to finally put resources into science and technology to help us get an edge. And we, I, think, I think Bush realized at the time, and, and it's important that he had the ear of the president to be able to make use of this knowledge, I think he realized that the discoveries that were made in medicine, for instance, in wartime were tremendous breakthroughs for us in peacetime uses for those, those new discoveries. I guess th this effort mirrors that in the sense that we're not at war, but we're in, a, we're in a very important position with regard to adversaries. Do you think that we'll have the same sense of purpose as a nation that we had in World War II? Is it as vivid for us? What could make it more vivid? Yeah, the good news is that we are not at war. So, so, uh, but at the same time, because we are not at war in the terms of World War II, people don't see the immense competition we have ahead of us. We had also Sputnik in, in 19, I think, 57, or I forget 57. And, and then, 
And then people got scared by that because they could see the satellite in the sky when they came out after dinner in the backyard and they see the, the thing moving up there and they got scared. They could see it. This competition, they don't really see it. And, uh, and therefore, there is not much of a sense of unity yet on, on competing. And I would like us to recognize that we do have a competition, that there is no more respect for a competitor than to compete with a competitor. Uh, and and this, is, this is the time to do it. Yes, Vannevar Bush was, uh, he was actually at MIT before he went to the, to the White House. And he, while he was uh, in his position helping the, the president, he oversaw uh, the development of the radar, which happened right here at MIT, that helped uh, win the war. He also started overseeing the Manhattan Project. So he was involved in understanding how universities can actually be part of the solution. And that led to the endless frontier science, and that led to the NSF. It was a wonderful set of moments by a brilliant mind. I think right now, let me just, let me just give you this, this example of what we stopped doing that we need to do on the youth-inspired research. We used to have something called Bell Labs. Unfortunately, many of, many of, your, of, your, of your listeners are too young to know what Bell Labs was, but, but hopefully they, people our age who are listening to you will, will, will know what Bell Labs was. It was a commercial company that had such a robust R&D section that they made huge discoveries about, about basic things in nature, isn't that right? Correct. But the model of Bell Labs, it was basic science with an eye on the application. So, but, but they created many discoveries that won Nobel Prizes, were basic science, but with an eye, it's using, what we call now use inspired, it was called back then with an eye to application. So let me give you two examples of what came out of that work. In 1947, three scientists came up with a solid-state transistor. Uh, that was viewed as a, as a major discovery that created the whole microelectronics and electronics technology we benefit today. You don't touch anything today that doesn't touch that discovery that, that of 1947. And, and it was not curiosity-driven. It was not people just thinking about something that they were curious. They wanted to replace something that, now this your listeners have never heard of, I can assure you, is a vacuum tube. Do, do, do you know what a vacuum tube was? It used to be <laughs> like a light bulb that, that was a very, an electronic device. I'm, I'm, you, I'm old enough to know what a crystal set was. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do know vacuum tubes, but now you, don't, you never see a radio with a, with a tube in it. They don't exist anymore. So these things were like, like light bulbs. Uh, they were very big, consumed too much energy. They got very hot and they were unreliable. One of them could last a given lifetime. You put 10 or 20 or 30 of them together to build a system, and one of them just went dead at any point in time, so the system would never work. So the Bell Labs wanted to find a replacement for that. They have no idea what could replace it, but sent a bunch of scientists to look for replacement. And this group found the way that succeeded, which is a solid-state transistor. So that discovery, the more than 75, about 75 years ago, has benefited us even today, created a whole technology industry in which we are benefiting. That's just one element. And I would like to see an element like that for the next 75 years. I'll give you another example. 
The following year, a fellow named Claude Shannon created what we now call the information theory. He's the father of communications. Everything we do today in communications was born out of the theory he created. Now, why did these groups a year apart came up with such a major innovation? They were doing basic science, but it was use-inspired. It was to an eye, to an application. That's the part we're missing. So in the civilian sector, the NSF was a great thing, ought to continue doing what they do with curiosity-driven research. We need this other thing that, that builds on the curiosity-driven, but it's basic science with and use with an eye to applications. And that's what we need for the next 75 years. I imagine that there has been some pushback from folks who thought maybe curiosity-driven research would be negatively affected by asking some portion of researchers to keep an eye on applications. But I get the impression from, from what I read that many, many people who had objections were, were won over. They rethought it and saw the value of it. If that's been so, if I'm right about that, can you tell me what, what it was that changed their view? How did they look at it differently? I think two things. I think uh, one is that there is a, a valid concern that um, uh, if you have an agency that has basic science as a purpose, but has to divvy up funds for curiosity-driven and for use inspired, that perhaps society will perceive more benefit to use inspired and fund that more than curiosity driven and shrink that. And I certainly don't want any of that. So the bill has elements that protects the, the, the curiosity driven. In other words, I think there are elements in the, in the, in the, in the, in the bill that says that the, uh, the, the technology part, the, the use-inspired part, will get no money unless the, the curiosity-driven part gets at least last year's plus, plus, uh, plus cost of living increase or some increase of some kind. So basically, the, the other one won't get a penny until we protect the, the curiosity-driven. They have to continue to get the funding. In addition to that, there is, I think there is at least, the bill says that at least, at least 15% of the money allocated to use inspired, at least 15% has to be invested in the curiosity driven. In other words, when the scientists realize that the curiosity driven won't be shrunk, it actually will be strengthened, they realize they have nothing to worry about, nothing is threatening they, what they believe is important, which I fully agree with them. And the whole point was to create something new that coexists, not to create something new that dwarfs. You know, whenever I've interviewed scientists about breakthroughs, the question always was, when will this produce something that will happen in our lives that, that we can use and that'll work, whether it's a vaccination or a new kind of computing? Or, do you have... In your dreams, do you have any vision of a timeline when something might actually put us ahead in the race? Because I'm exposed to it and I see what's, what's moving there, 
I have very high hopes on, on two areas of research that I'm very excited about uh, that colleagues of mine are doing at MIT, and that's on, on the brain. One is, is how people learn, uh, you know, whether it's a baby or a two-year-old or an adult. How they learn is so important, not just for the artificial intelligence example that I gave you, that you can build machines that don't need to see a billion pictures to learn something, but also on how to create tools, going back to the beginning of our conversation, online tools that are more geared to allow you to learn better. So, so how we learn is, is a mystery that we need to solve. And I, we have people here that are doing, and I'm sure many places in the country are doing great work there. And I can see breakthroughs coming within 10 years. And another area of the brain that I think we need some breakthroughs um, is on the whole area of uh, mental disorders in, in the, uh, an aging mind, like Alzheimer's. We have a scientist here, this, this kind of Nobel laureate scientist, understanding what's causing Alzheimer's. And this scientist saw something that she wanted to test. But to test that, she was talking to an engineer that is also a quasi-scientist about what she had discovered as she wanted to test it. And part of testing it had to do with illuminating or triggering some cells in the brain. And this other fellow said, I know how to do that. And now they are working together using light to stimulate brain cells to do away with Alzheimer's. I expect that to happen, and it better happen in my lifetime. Because <laughs> I, uh, I, I want to make sure it's there, whether God forbid I need it. But, but this is, that's the beauty of what I want to see more of. I mean, brilliant scientists doing something amazing and then realizing when they discover something, there is a way out but somebody else can come up with that other thing that they need. That, those two things, and I give you more examples of that, but those two are examples of how you can use youth-inspired science to make major discoveries that will improve our life. Well, your campus is the Disneyland of all of us who want to see playing with nature and learning about it. I don't know whether there is a Disneyland for everybody, but for me, it is Disneyland. I mean, this is, this is a joy when, when so many things uh, in the world uh, uh, make you feel somewhat hopeless because there are so many things that we have to address and fix and, and, and sort out. Uh, this is a place in which everything, everything gives you hope and opportunity and, and, uh, and a reason to, to keep working for, for a better future. So to me, this is, this is a distant line of the mind and of the spirit for me. Well, you sure seem like the right guy in the right place. And I, I, I love talking with you during this time. Thank you. We, we always end our shows, I hope you're game for this, with seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers. And they're generally about communication in a, in, a, in a loose way. Are you up for it? I wasn't prepared for it, but sure, why not? That's sort of the whole idea. <laughs> so the first question, especially in view of what we've been talking about, and we, everybody gets asked this question, so it's kind of interesting to hear what you'll say. What do you wish you really understood? Uh, human behavior. Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, where you politely tell them, uh, I believe you're misunderstanding something. <laughs> and then they say to you, no, I think you are. <laughs> well, it's the beginning of a conversation. <laughs> What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? 
Where do you come from? <laughs> Why is that strange? <laughs> Because nobody can figure it out. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, that's a very tough question. Um, uh, maybe yawning a little bit would help? <laughs> Actually, that worked on me once. I was compulsively talking, and after three yawns, I got it. <laughs> okay, now let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a real conversation with that person? Uh, what is that's the most exciting thing you're doing today? Today? Oh, that's interesting. Ask about today. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good technique. Well, I don't know. I, I haven't tried that yet, but that's just the first thing that I thought. <laughs> well, you just developed a policy here. That's good. <laughs> What gives you confidence? Oh, the young generation. Uh, I see uh, so much, so much desire to, to just make things better than what they are receiving. I mean, we are, they're inheriting from us uh, a, a planet that is undergoing severe mistreatment by humans. They are a society that is very unequal in, 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 in social justice, in racial inequities, in economic inequity. They're inheriting such a... Uh, a situation that is very complicated. And they, I can see them saying, we're going to fix all this. And, uh, and uh, that, that gives me hope for the future. Last question. What book changed your life? I don't have one book, but there is a number of books, if I may answer it that way. I love reading about people who, the, the direction of history, people who made a difference. Uh, so it's mostly autobiographies, and whether it's Churchill or whether it's Gandhi or whether it's, it's, it's just every one of them uh, gives me, uh, allows me to learn a great deal on how people thought and what they thought uh, at the moment in which they had to make a very difficult decision that changed the course of history. That fascinates me. I think you're one of those people. Do you have an autobiography I can read? <laughs> Alan, I don't belong in that category. I, 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 uh, I'm just extremely happy that where I come from, I'm able to be in a place like this. And that, that's, that's just heaven for me. Oh, that's great. Th thank you so much for this conversation. Well, Alan, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it very, very much. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Raphael Reif has been the president of MIT since 2012. Before that, he had a distinguished career as an electrical engineer. The bill we discussed, introduced in Congress by Senator Chuck Schumer and others, is titled the Endless Frontier Act. That's a deliberate reference to a report that was published 75 years ago and that was credited with launching America's post-war boom in science and technology. That report was called Science, the Endless Frontier. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, 
And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Next in our series of conversations, I reconnect with Pardee Sabeti. She was a guest in Season 3 of Clear and Vivid, talking with us about her experience in battling the Ebola virus. She's now using insights from that and from later work in tracking and containing virus outbreaks to tackle the current pandemic of COVID-19. By the time this gets aired, it will be either a terrifically exciting moment or a big failure. We are riding on the edge close to the sun, but we are working with this amazing um, group uh, in Colorado called Gary Community Investments to think about how to bring the school system back. So if we're going to do it, and, and here we are in it, it's to really do it right. And, um, and so the app will be rolled out as part of that overarching program. And we have a dashboard that goes with it that allows... Uh, principals and teachers and state superintendents to kind of see what's going on and to catch uh, outbreaks as soon as they occur. Party Sabeti, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>